0: Well, welcome to the bonus section of episode 13 of this week's episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. I was so uh, brain-fried over all the stuff that went on Tuesday when Caleb and I recorded the actual first episode, which you'll hear in the show after this addendum, I forgot to cover the one question I got for the update section. So... I'm going to do that now, and then the regular episode that we recorded will start right after this little interlude, shall we say. So a few weeks ago, a gentleman sent me a YouTube video that runs about 27 minutes about something that's been well known in MMA for years. And that's many of the early Japanese, that were supposed to be Japanese MMA bouts, but involved professional wrestlers were worked and there's been suspicion about some of the pride bouts as well and I don't know exactly which pride bouts might have been worked but I know for sure that the Gracies have gone on record that they were all approached about working matches with some of the wrestlers that challenged them they refused and had contests but it's it's a pretty open secret that that's uh been gone on for uh, in the past in the early days of mma so the video is very good in talking about that and it is a youtube video directed to mma fans who probably don't really care about pro wrestling history but the thing that the gentleman drew my attention to was there's about a four or five minute kind of history of catch wrestling, professional wrestling at about the nine minute mark and he asked me about the accuracy of a lot of it I'm not going to take a whole lot out of it because for an overview of wrestling for MMA fans it's fine and a lot of the things that are in there are true but just not in that order or that the way that, but there was a couple things I really wanted to point out in there. That so he attributes the creation of catch as catch can to a gentleman in Wales in 1877. But catch wrestling, in some form, and let's say what it was back then, it was catch as catch can, and that's what it was called for a long time. That will be my third point I get to. But catch as catch can as a style existed before 1877 in Wales, in England, and it uh, definitely existed before 1877 in the United States because it was the style that carnival wrestlers uh, used, and professional wrestling in this country uh, came from a combination of wrestlers doing Greco-Roman and challenging European wrestlers, and then the carnival wrestlers. And many of the best uh wrestlers produced in this country, Ed, Evan Strangler Lewis, Martin Farmer Burns, they all uh, learned their professional wrestling style, catch-as-catch-can, uh, from the, the carnival workers. So that that isn't quite accurate. There was catch wrestling before that. It might not have been called catch-as-catch-can, but I know in the 1880s, at least in the early 1880s, and maybe even in the 1870s, they're calling it Catch-as-Catch-Can in the United States, and there's only been a handful of English wrestlers that came over in the early 1880s at that point. And it would be called Catch-as-Catch-Can in this country. They probably quit distinctively referring to it separate from professional wrestling, because after 1890 the catch-as-catch-can became the dominant style of professional wrestling in the United States and after the 20s it was the only style. I, I don't remember any Greco-Roman matches or Cornish wrestling, Cumberland, that all went out in the 19th century. Really the only two styles that was wrestled professionally in the United States after the 1900s was Greco-Roman and catch-as-catch-can. And in England 18, uh, I'm sorry, 18. In 1981, I was watching an episode of "Are You Being Served," a uh, British comedy from that time period, and they had Jackie Palo, who was a famous British wrestler, on there, and he was supposed to be having a boxing match with Captain Peacock. But of course, Captain Peacock can't uh, box that day, so. They were going to have a wrestling match, and Mr. Humphreys had bragged about how he was the catch-as-catch-can champion. So they referred to the wrestling style there multiple times as -as catch-as-catch-can. The second thing I wanted to cover was the freestyle wrestling we know in the United States for the Olympics and high school and colleges deriving from catch-as-catch-can. And I do believe that its roots are from catch-as-catch-can. It didn't evolve, at least in the United States, the way the video says. Because Joe Stecker wrestled in high school in the 19-teens. Nat Pendleton was already a, both an Olympic and a college champion in the very early 1920s. And if you look at freestyle wrestling, freestyle wrestling looks like catch-as-catch-can wrestling without the submission holds. And some old-timers used to say that was the difference between amateurs and the pros. The pros knew submissions. The amateurs didn't. It's very hard to know the exact origins of everything. But because all the other popular styles were upper body throwing styles, with the exception of catch-as-catch-can, which allowed... Uh, single leg, double leg takedowns. You could use holds below the waist. Almost all of, not almost, all of the other styles that I'm aware of are all upper body throwing styles. So the catch catch can wrestling, I think, was definitely the basis for freestyle wrestling. But freestyle wrestling, I don't know that that's exactly catch-as-catch-can without the submission holds. Or were both of those styles developed around the same time and you just didn't teach submission holds to people uh, unless they were going to be involved in carnival wrestling or somebody had a carnival wrestling background but I do believe that freestyle wrestling's roots are catch related in some way and then the last thing I want to touch on is just what I I said because I do use this term now particularly in the writing writing catches catch can a lot uh it can be a bit much sometimes and it also kind of messes with the formatting of your book sometimes with all the hyphens and all that and most people that are familiar with catches Catch Can know it as catch wrestling because that's a modern term um like I said in 1891 they were still calling it catches Catch Can in Britain the first time I heard people talking about catch wrestling and meaning is Catch Can style wrestling was in the late 80s or early 90s, and they were all people that were being trained in legitimate catch-as-catch-can submissions and that by Carl Gotch or Billy Robinson. Most of their students or people they've worked with call it catch wrestling. And everybody knows the term refers to the same thing. Catch-as-catch-can is catch wrestling. But catch wrestling is a more modern term. I've never seen it Written up in the newspapers as catch wrestling, at, at any time um, that I've studied and I've gone is to the mid 30s in depth, and I've looked a little bit in the 40s just out of interest. But from 1870 to 1936 uh, or 7, you never hear the term catch wrestling. If they do write out catch, it's catches catch can. But it's a much easier term to, to write. But those are the people that I heard using that term. So when you hear catch wrestling, people are talking about catch as catch can. Other than that, I thought it was pretty accurate. And it's accurate enough to give you a, enough of a background to appreciate it as it applies to mixed martial arts. If you really want to get in the weeds and and learn more history, you know, I'll say I've written several books on the the time frame. Um, And uh, Scott Teal, Tim Hornbaker, and several others have written lots of books about that time period too. So if you want to get in the weeds a little bit, you can pick up some of their books as well. And it'll get a little bit more in depth. But as a, like I said, I didn't want to take too much out of it, because as an overall lead-in to an MMA topic, it's fine to give people enough of a background to have an understanding to appreciate it from an MMA, mixed martial arts standpoint. MMA was easy for me to say there. And with that, I'm going to end this little addendum, and we will just move on to the regular show. So. Enjoy episode 13. I hope that you'll come back in two weeks and check out what we're going to do about Cor Livingston. Take care. It was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode 13. Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920. And as we sit here today on Election Day in the United States, November 8th, 2022, we almost didn't get lucky episode 13 off the ground because after voting this morning on my way uh, to my sister's to help her take care of something... Either I hit something in the road or there was already a split in the tire, but my tire blew out, <laughs> and I didn't know that my son was going to still be able to uh, be here to do this because I'm going to go now get a tire tomorrow, but we're fortunate we've, we're going to be able to do the podcast, and since that happened this morning, I thought I was going to actually do the podcast as a solo episode, but Caleb's here. Hello. So we're going to do the regular podcast. However, I've changed the topics around a little bit and I've decided on what the topics are going to be for the remainder of the year since I thought today was going to be a solo episode. So today for the main topic, we're going to talk since we're getting ready to do the hard launch for shooting or working the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. I'm going to talk about a title defense in that book that Tom Jenkins made. And then the next episode, which is going to uh, be published on Monday November 24th, will be on Cora Livingston, the first world prof- world women's professional wrestling champion. And December 5th, I'm going to discuss what we talked about potentially discussing with this episode. I could do it, but I've just released those posts. I don't want to do the posts and then the podcast back-to-back three weeks in a row. But I'm going to discuss the last two shoot matches that Ed Strangler Lewis had in 1934 and 1936. And one of them, Ed Strangler Lewis said, was the greatest legitimate contest he ever wrestled. I'll let you know whether I agree with that or not. And then the final podcast for the year... Is going to be on Monday, December 19th. And in that episode, I'm going to be talking about one of the matches that John, the Nebraska Tiger Man, Pesek, wrestled. We've done a whole episode on him before, but there's a controversial match that actually didn't occur in 1930 that's got me thinking about Actually, be that being my next project is John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesek. So we're going to do another episode on him just focused on one aspect of his career. So that'll be the schedule for the remainder of the year. And one of the things I was going to tell you was I was thinking about when your Uncle Danny comes up for the holidays, mm-hmm. maybe getting him on the podcast... Okay. And he can tell the story of when he thought I was going to get him killed when uh, he was fourteen and I was seventeen, uh-huh. and we were at the Kiel Auditorium uh, downtown.
1: Yeah, I'll be outnumbered by two fans. <laughs> <laughs> Look extra dumb.
0: <laughs> well, Uncle Danny and I—the um, episode I had you watch, mm-hmm. the uh, Raw, not Raw, prime time, the prime time wrestling episode I had you watch mm-hmm. was actually my aunt Willa. Uncle Danny's mom's favorite uh, episode. She was was not a wrestling fan. So Aunt Willa didn't like wrestling, but she would let us watch it in the living room. If Uncle Lloyd was home, we didn't get to watch it in the living room. But if Uncle Lloyd wasn't home, Aunt Willa would let us watch it. And she did not watch the wrestling, Mm -hmm. but she would watch the interactions between Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heaton and and laugh. And that episode I had you uh, watch was um, one of our, it was her favorite episode. Yeah. And um, we lost my Aunt Willa this year in September. She was 85 years old. And uh, my cousin Danny and I were talking about some of the matches we had gone to and everything. And I thought that would be a good topic for the podcast. Yeah, no. Up. So one of the things I wanted to do before Jim, so on the next episode we can mm-hmm. review the AEW investigation all that, because right now I really don't have the
1: wherewithal strength with wherewithal it.
0: to go through all of that. Yeah. Because I'm not going to look at it um, from a wrestling fan's point of view. I'm just going to purely look at it as someone who has had 100, uh, 100 employees reporting to him at one time, from a management, a director, an administrator's perspective, yeah where I see all the problems with this. Now, I think those problems are going to lead to problems for that actual business.
1: Yeah.
0: Beyond whether the fans are really pissed off about it or not. Yeah. So, my question to you is, did you want to review the Primetime Wrestling episode on this uh, show, or do you want to to wait till the next show? Because there was a pay-per-view this week that I did watch. I'm sure you didn't. Well <laughs> if I had to pay for it you better believe I didn't. No, you didn't. And these are all premium live events. Okay. So it's it's free on Peacock. Okay. I'm about to tell you, I'm like that, I'm poor. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, uh before we get into the topic for this week's show, one of the things I noticed the last couple weeks is I've left you without a whole lot to say uh, on several of the episodes.
1: I mean, I'm still learning, so <laughs> Right.
0: I know you're learning about the wrestling. But you're my youngest son. Right. You're the youngest of the three. And the reason I picked you to be the co-host is, one, you're not afraid to speak in public. Mm-hmm. You know, you used to do stand-up and stuff like that. Yes, I did. And, and out of my kids, you tend to be the the one that's uh, comes up with the best one-liners. Uh, your mom right. and Uncle Danny got a great kick out of Hey, Dad, uh, every time Mom wants to get rid of you, is she going to send you down to Uncle Danny's? (laughs) I mean, is it wrong, though? (laughs) Well, it was my idea to go down there, but uh, he's got to get that house ready. Yeah. But he he got a kick out of that one, too. But, so, you're my youngest son. Yeah. But you are also a father. Yes, I am. So, how many kids do you have?
1: I have two great, amazing boys.
0: Yeah. And uh, one just had a birthday, and one's getting ready to have a birthday next week. Yes, sir. And you're married. Yeah. And you are a manager. Yes, I am. Where you're working, even though you're young. I won't give your exact age, but let's just say he's under 25. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you don't know a whole lot of wrestling because we established the first podcast you were on. You were not a wrestling fan growing up. I wasn't watching it at that time. I Yeah pretty much switched to MMA. I did not watch professional wrestling from about 2009, for sure 2010 when we okay. get rid of cable, but I had even quit watching it a year or so before that. So around 2008, 2009, and I didn't watch again until 2016, and that was NXT and Ring of Honor. I wasn't even watching the main WWE shows, that, let's face it until Triple H took over a few months ago, those things were pretty much unwatchable.
1: Uh, we heard Jim Cornette, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they were. Yeah.
0: The pay-per-views were not bad because there was less of the skits. Mm-hmm. It's the idiotic, childish skits that I found so difficult to uh, deal with on those shows. And, and it was just a boring, juvenile yeah. offering. But you didn't watch any of that stuff. No. you. But growing up as a kid... You were in martial arts. You started TKD at 5. You started judo at 6. Yeah. No. Um, and you always preferred judo. So, was there any particular reason you were drawn to grappling? or
1: It just worked better. Uh, I liked how smooth it was, especially fighting. And I'm a big guy, so I had a lot of leverage there. So, that always worked out. I do like striking, but I don't know. There's something good about being able to throw someone down. And change position while fighting. Right. It's good knowing you can do
0: that. The one thing I think that grappling, and that's the reason I wanted you guys to do judo, mm-hmm. is if you're a good judo player, if you're a good wrestler, you control where that fight takes part. Yeah. You know, I think that if you get into judo, now it wasn't always this way. I've heard people say that in the 20s, judo was very developed on the ground. Yeah. But because of the rule set, it is developed where it's mostly stand up now mm. with the throws and that So, but you guys started doing jiu jitsu as soon as I did too so yeah. you were doing ground grappling as well to supplement your throws and everything Yeah. but yeah I was always drawn to the to the grappling and it really helped me because you're about 6 foot yeah. and about 270 I was 5'9, 5'10 but I was 240 and so I was hard to throw and I could get up underneath people real easy so that was a a great sport for me yeah um but one of the read that's one of the other reasons i picked you for this is with mm-hmm. your grappling background even though these guys are working together yeah it is boy it's really straight a lot from grappling but you can at least kind of <laughs> watch it the older stuff i think you make more sense of than the stuff you're going to see i was today. uh i was watching mr perfect
1: fight uh rick Martel, and they did a complete like flying like throwing I'm like, oh well that's not sanctions. <laughs> <laughs> that was fake. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there, there's no way some of those things are gonna are gonna yeah. fly. So yeah, they're cooperating with each other and working with each other. Um so maybe we will review that at the end because did you see the main event which was the ultimate warrior versus Haku? I didn't. I thought the Mr. Perfect Rick Martell was the highlight because they were former I want, heavyweight. I wonder if you watched the week before because that was a two-week thing. Okay. They, they were on the Western set two weeks in a row. Okay. The second one is the better one, but those episodes are both great. Okay. And these episodes are in 1989. We'll, we'll have to look up the dates, and I'll put those dates in the show notes yeah. at kensermanjr.com slash episode 13. I'm thinking they were in February of 89. They were. Uh, the 6th is the one that I watched. Okay, February so February six. 6th and it probably February 13th because I'm thinking you watched the first one.
1: Season 5, episode 6. And, I had and to that, look it up. And that,
0: and that episode, so you heard what he just said there. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and repeat it.
1: Season 5, episode 6 of Primetime Wrestling.
0: Yeah. So you must have watched the first one. Because the main event for the second one, and that does sound right, Mr. Perfect versus Rick Martel, that would have been a main event for that show because a lot of the wrestling was (laughs) god-awful. The second show, the main event, was Ultimate Warrior versus King Tonga. Okay. So we'll talk about that first episode at at the end of this. Um, So what I wanted to get into, because I actually, this is one of the more fascinating matches I found in the book but not because of the actual wrestling mm-hmm. even though this was a legitimate contest yeah and it as unlike some other legitimate contests this one uh wasn't boring okay but because one Jenkins was pretty much more dominant than McLeod mm-hmm. he beat McLeod And he beat McLeod for several matches. So when they wrestled on Christmas night, there was no reason for people to think that this match was going to be any different than the other matches. Jenkins was going to win because Jenkins had pretty much showed he was the better wrestler Mm -hmm. than McLeod. And Remember what I said. Jenkins and George Hackenschmidt are the only two wrestlers who I believe did not take part in work matches. I haven't found anybody else yet that I don't think at least worked some of the matches
1: okay
0: so jenkins defended his uh title on christmas night in worcester massachusetts and probably thought they were going to draw a decent crowd but unfortunately they only drew a little over a thousand fans about a thousand one hundred and this is 1902 christmas night 1902 that would have been a great crowd 10 years before that Mm mm-hmm but at this point in time, they're starting to draw three to 5,000 fans to most title matches. So this yeah. crowd is a big disappointment, number one. Yeah. And they're wrestling in the Mechanics Hall in Worcester, Massachusetts. Now, what the fans didn't know is when Jenkins entered the ring, he entered the ring at a major disadvantage. Because he had injured his leg in training. Mm-hmm. And blood poisoning had actually set in. Mm-hmm. And Jenkins didn't want to cancel the bout because he had a $500 forfeit up. So if he canceled the match, McLeod would get the $500, and then they would have to reschedule the rematch again. Yeah. So instead of surrendering the 500 he went ahead because even though he was weakened, he thought, I could still beat McLeod. I beat him easily yeah. in the past. And this was a very foolish decision on Jenkins' part because blood poisoning back in that day and age is fatal yeah okay didn't kill won't kill anybody day you'll get a treatment of antibiotics and you'll be fine mm-hmm. but back in that day so you know i've researched a lot on the history of the st louis police department and i've written yes. books on it a lot of the officers who died in the line of duty mm-hmm. from say the 1880s to as late as probably the, the late teens maybe early 30s, they would suffer what they thought and the doctors thought at the time were minor wounds. Okay. They'd be sent home to recover. Yeah. And one of the most egregious cases I'm actually going to talk about before we get into this particular match because Jenkins was very foolish to do this mm-hmm. because what happens when you start working out and you're wrestling with people?
1: Your muscles
0: start going and the blood starts circulating. Yes, the blood starts circulating through the body. So if you got blood poisoning, you're moving that blood poisoning throughout your system. It kill you much quicker. Yeah. Um, it's a miracle that the blood poisoning didn't kill him because this was a fatal disease. There was no treatment for it. Yeah. Um, so he must have had a mild case, and the bandage he wore made it even worse. But let's go back to the blood poisoning. And okay. so in 1893, D. A. Boone, who was a mounted police officer in St. Louis City. Mm -hmm. chasing after a guy who he believes has stolen a horse the guy fires back over his shoulder and nicks his wrist literally nicks his wrist with a bullet he goes for treatment all they do is wrap it he doesn't even go home to convalesce he basically goes back on duty for a few weeks starts feeling bad after a couple weeks Mm -hmm. doctor takes a look blood poisoning is set in so they send him home, don't move around, don't do anything. You know, that's your only hope of recovery, because there's no treatment for it at this time. Yeah. Within a week, he dies from a, 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 a nick on the wrist. Yeah. Today, they pour a little antibiotic on it, wrap it up, and send you on your way. And that's pretty much what they did with him in 1893. But blood poisoning set in. That's how deadly a killer that was in that day and age. So this was very foolish. $500 could have cost him his life. Yeah. But the one thing I've learned in researching professional wrestling, money is usually at the heart of everything. Double crosses, the gambling schemes, yeah. all this stuff. It's about making money. Guys get into the professional, wow. in all combat sports, to make money while they can. So Jenkins goes ahead with this match. And Jenkins puts a brace on his leg... But the braces in those days weren't like we have today, where you just wrap a ace yeah. bandage around it, and you get those little soft clips. Yeah. Gonna... This is a bandage that has brass buttons on it. Uh-huh. So the brass buttons go up the. Say it had 10 brass buttons on it. Yeah. Well, he starts wrestling, and a couple of the brass buttons start digging in to the wound. Blood starts rolling into the bandage. You know, they, they can see that the brass buttons are pushing inward mm. you know sticking it into the wound and that making it much worse despite all of this jenkins won the first fall in 53 minutes with 3 recorder nelson and he had to be helped to the back during the intermission because the blood poisoning is starting to take effect on him he comes out and the buckles are digging into his things about he just Mm -hmm. rips the brace off because the buttons are doing worse damage to him than McLeod is yeah but McLeod senses the advantage and he actually uh, takes Jenkins down with a half Nelson and Crotch Hold and him. yeah so let, let me back up the brass buttons were digging into his leg for the first fall and the second fall yeah between the second and the third fall, he rips that brace off. He's he's just going to go out there because it's it's worsening what he's yeah. dealing with. So that he tore off the brace between the second and the third fall. They wrestle for 20 minutes, and nobody's really gaining an advantage. Mm-hmm. And Jenkins wants to continue, but he's he's obviously in no condition to continue. And the referee was a respected referee by the name of George Toohey. Yeah. And Tui steps in and says, I don't think you can continue. I think I'm going to have to stop the match on a, on a forfeit. Yeah. And Jenkins doesn't want to, because Jenkins doesn't want to lose his title. He wants to continue with the match. Mm-hmm. But Tui lets him go maybe five more minutes, and then he stops the match, and he awards the, t- the match and the championship back to McLeod.
1: Yeah.
0: So J- Jenkins was a three-time champion. Mm-hmm. Um... Yes, he was a three-time champion because we've already talked about him and Gotch split their competitive series 3-3. Yeah. Later on, after he was a semi-retired instructor at West Point, Gotch beat him two more matches. Yeah. But I don't consider that the competitive series. Um, and he lost the title to Gotch and he won the title back from Gotch. But His first two title reigns were defeats over McLeod mm-hmm. because obviously McLeod's not going to hold this title any longer than it takes Jenkins to recover. And fortunately for Jenkins, he did recover. Two, he probably saved his life by stopping the match when he did. Mm -hmm. And Jenkins had to go home and uh, just basically lay there for a month. But he did recover. And then he got his rematch with Dan McLeod in April of 1903. I found that match fascinating because of the blood poisoning aspect. When I had read he got blood poisoning... I was like, well, I know he didn't die because I knew he had those matches with Gotch and that later on, but that was unusual. Yeah, blood poisoning a lot of times with a, a death sentence from very minor wounds, you know, a bullet graze to the wrist and stuff. And I don't want to speak out of school, but I think it was the unique thing with the with the bullets having gunpowder and stuff on them. Yeah, when they hit people that that blood poisoning tended to kill people more because most of the people I know that were most of the officers who were stabbed or had a broken bone or something Mm -hmm. recovered uh, even when they got blood poisoning it was minor but people that got shot in that era if they got blood poisoning it was usually usually fatal so that may be one of the things that led to why he didn't get uh, a fatal dose of it, because he didn't have residue or something yeah. from that injury that was getting in to the blood as well. But I, I find it more fascinating from the blood poisoning aspect than. The...
1: Yeah, no, I mean uh, the fact
0: that he went two
1: rounds before.
0: Yeah, he couldn't go anymore. Yeah, it is amazing. You know, with that. And when we talk about one of Ed Lewis's final matches, that's gonna be, it's gonna be a similar thing. He persevered through something that most people should never be able to persevere through. But Jenkins was a super tough guy, so. Um, so you watched the first episode. Yeah. So you saw where they the show started, they threw dynamite over a wall, mm-hmm. and then Bobby comes in through the thing Coughing and waving and stuff. Yeah. Okay, so you saw the first first one. So that one was good too. That was a rare location shoot on Primetime Wrestling. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they were in a studio. Uh, If you watch any other episode, almost all the time they were in a studio. The only other one I can remember where they did something... uh, I, I don't know that you would call that a set. It was a set that they did that Western thing on. Because they were supposed to be on the set of a Western film. Yeah, They did a couple where they were out on boats. They did uh, one where Bobby was supposed to be taking Gorilla to Andre the Giant's training camp right before Andre wrestled Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. at uh, WrestleMania three. Yeah, And that was kind of an on-location shoot. They went out in the woods somewhere. And, but for the most part, they shot in the studio. So this was a little bit unusual. They would do these special shoots every great once in a while. I think they went to Caesars Palace a couple times, but for the most part, they shot everything in that Primetime Wrestling studio in Stanford, Connecticut. But this one was a supposed location shooting on a, a Western uh, set. So, did any of the other matches stick out to you other than Mr. Perfect and Rick Martell? Those, those really. guys are really good.
1: Yeah, not really.
0: So we didn't have the capability to stream back in that day. Yeah. If we had, we would probably only have watched the segments with Bobby and Gorilla, and we would have skipped most of the matches because the matches were pretty abysmal. So Pedro Morales was the WWE world champion, and Mm -hmm. he was an incredible wrestler in the 70s. But by the 80s, he was in his mid-40s, and it seemed like he was on primetime wrestling Every single week, wrestling some other um, mid-carder at that point or low main event mm-hmm. type guy, and he would put those guys over. And then if he was wrestling a mid-card guy, a lot of times Pedro would go over. But yeah. Danny and I were talking about that. Some of the matches you saw there. Now you did occasionally. When the Bull- British Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation first came in to the WWE, they weren't tag teams yet. Yeah. And there was a show from Toronto where Brett wrestled, he might have wrestled Dynamite, which was a big rivalry in the Calgary area. Mm-hmm. And they always had great matches. And then Davey Boy wrestled somebody else, and Jim Neidhart wrestled somebody else. But they had come in as singles, and then they put those guys together as tag teams. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, the wrestling was pretty, pretty abysmal. You know, you'd have C.V. afi versus Mike Sharp. That's not going to sell out anything. And for this show, the interactions between Gorilla and everything clearly outstripped everything else. Yeah, Th- That was what would draw people in to watch. So was there anything memorable about that show that stuck out to you? Uh,
1: the ending of the, uh, between, you know, Perfect and Martell, where they actually drew, they came to a draw, and I, uh, got to hear an entire stadium boo out everybody, <laughs> so.
0: So, the, those, in that era, draws were much more common. Yeah. You had time limits. So, in mm-hmm. St. Louis, somebody normally went over,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or somebody normally, uh, or it was a draw. And a lot of T V matches were draws. So remember early on I had you watch Carrie Von Eric versus Kimatera? Yeah. That was a ten minute draw. That was common. You almost never see draws today. Because for one, WWE did away with time limits mm. ages ago. So if you get a draw, they don't call it a draw because there's no time limit. It's a double DQ. So both people were disqualified. But it really limits what you're doing because then you either gotta have this stupid brawl where these guys are getting DQ'd or yeah but in the old days they could just go 20 minutes and nobody would win and you could juice up the matches to get people to come in to watch a pay-per-view now or a premium live event in the old days you were trying to get them to go to the live events at the local arenas so you'd have them go to a 10 or 15 minute draw but at the end of that 15 minute draw it would look like that guy was going to beat the champion if he just had five more minutes well come out this Friday and watch him wrestle because it's an hour time limit yeah you know that doesn't doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So, um, and obviously, not much stuck out to you on that show, you know.
1: I mean, the western bits were funny.
0: Yeah, the the, com- yeah. the comedy with Gorilla and that were were always hilarious. But a lot of the wrestling just didn't stand out. Yeah. And in that era, the wrestling in the NWA Jim Crockett Promotions was so much better than what was going on in WWE. Even though they had really good, talented guys, they hadn't gone to Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart yet. Mm. So they had older guys, bigger guys, and they always went. There was one exception. Um, When Hogan had his matches with Paul Orndorff, those were really good matches, Um, mostly because of Mr. Wonderful, because Hogan didn't have those kind of matches with most other people. He was always fighting these big, giant guys. Yeah. But Orndorf could go, and he was believable against a six foot he always said he was six eight, but about a six foot five two hundred something pound two eighty two ninety baby face, yeah. Paul Orndorf, because of his physique and everything, he was believable in that role against Hogan, so those were some good matches. The macho Man versus Ricky Steamboat match from WrestleMania Three is one of the greatest matches of all time, yeah. But, for the most part, the WWE product in the 80s and early 90s until they went to Brett and Shawn was really not that good. Um, There was something else I was going Oh, So I watched that premium live event from Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. I didn't watch all the matches Um, and that's actually the first premium live event since Triple H took over that I didn't watch everything. Because mm. number one, I had some things to do, you know. Yeah. I was down the country trying to get some things done, so I didn't have time to just sit there and watch the whole thing straightforward. I had to run over to Grandma Teresa's and all yeah. that. But even then, I was like, okay, the, the only matches on this thing I'm really looking forward to is Lashley versus Lesnar, mm-hmm. uh, Drew McIntyre versus um Carrying cross, so that was my favorite match on the last mm-hmm. premium live event this one in the cage just didn't it wasn't it's good and, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was the cage I'm not quite sure what it was because the last match when they had the strap match and generally I don't like strap matches and modern strap matches mm-hmm. they're kind of crappy but that was a better match and then uh Reigns versus Logan Paul was pretty amazing Uh, (laughs) Reigns is good at anything this Logan Paul I I have no idea who he was before um, he started showing up challenging people to box and everything but he has to have some kind of really good athletic background because this guy is a hell of an athlete and he blew his MCL out halfway through the match and still wrestled the whole match he picked Roman Reigns up on his shoulder yeah and did a power slam with that knee messed up. So kudos to, to Logan Paul. You're a hell of an athlete, if, if nothing else. And he, he and Roman Reigns, you're in there with the, the, the uh, best right now. Um, I know Roman says he's the, the GOAT. I don't quite go that far. But Roman is without question the best in the ring now. And then um, I really even though I really like the Usos normally and I would normally always watch their matches, I've seen them with the battling brutes enough. I didn't need to watch another battling brutes match.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, had no interest in the tag, the girls' tag team match. I watched a little bit of Bianca Belair and Bayley. But they usually put on fantastic matches. Yeah. When they go to Saudi Arabia, though, all the women have to cover up. Yeah. So they're not in their normal gear. And I don't want to ogle them, but they just look odd not wearing their normal gear in these matches. They didn't
1: look like athletes.
0: They did look like athletes, but it's just, it's odd. You know, you see them in this gear, and it's not like, oh, we're putting on gear because it's WrestleMania or something. It's like because of the rules of the country, which you have to respect when you're there. Yeah. We've got to cover up. Um, So... It it's the first one I didn't watch all the way through, mm-hmm. but I'm going to say the pay per views under Vince were normally better than the Raw and SmackDown under Vince, which were unwatchable.
1: Yeah,
0: Vince, I don't know what happened to him in the last. Five, well, if we believe the investigation's going on, he was distracted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it it was not nearly as good, and even the pay per views would have some really stupid juvenile crap on it yeah under Triple H the product as a whole has been much better Mm. Um, I used to be able to watch an entire weeks of WWE under Vince in just under a half an hour because what's Roman Reigns doing is there any other match in all this stuff they put on worth watching this week the answer a lot of times was no and you'd be done Um, the shows are much better they're watchable now yeah. The pay per views have been much, much better. Um, premium live events. So overall I would give uh Triple H's reign as the head of creative a thumbs up. I think Triple H and Stephanie can really turn the WWE back around. Yeah. And I do not I really would like to see AEW succeed because mm-hmm. competition makes things better. Yeah. After this investigation, I don't think it's going to happen, and we'll we'll talk about that next okay. week. Um, but really, if you're a wrestling fan, you at least have something plausible to watch now. Yeah. Whereas before, it was just a lot of really bad wrestling, and I just really wasn't that interested. Yeah. So, my favorite era is probably always going to be the era I grew up in. But I'm not gonna really write a research about that because I'm more interested in the history and talking about, you know, when it was a mixture of working and shooting. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, where are we at time-wise, bud? 35 minutes. Well, I think we've talked all your ears off for this episode. Remember, uh, next the next episode, uh, episode 14 will be released on Monday November 24th, and we're going to talk about Cora Livingston, who was the first recognized women's wrestling champion. I'm going to, as much as I've researched this era, I've recently discovered her. Oh, yeah. um, I always thought Mildred Burke was the first, and it's actually Cora Livingston. And uh, she was active from about 1904, 5, six, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Until the late teens, early 20s. And the reason that is, is because in, I think it was 1908, but I'll, I'll know, I'll have the exact date, or I'll have at least the exact year <coughs> for the next podcast. Cora Livingston married uh, Paul Bowser, the longtime promoter of Boston.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: when she married him, they were just both wrestlers. Yeah, And he got his, promotional, his beginnings in promotion by wrestling himself and promoting his wife so he was promoting her matches and then when he became the promoter in Boston, the local promoter for Boston, mm-hmm. she retired from the ring and helped him promote and they they promoted that Boston from the late teens, early 20s into the 1950s when they both passed away. Yeah. She so, uh, she's a trailblazer in more ways than one. I don't think there were anybody And while Paul would have been there, I don't think there was anybody, any female promoters until Mildred Burke and her husband, Billy Wolf, started promoting women's wrestling.
1: Yeah.
0: And Cora Livingston was helping Paul Bowser promote men's wrestling in Boston. So she's a trailblazer in in more ways than one. And I need to do a lot more research on her because a lot more needs to be written. and She needs to be known. You know, that's a... Mm -hmm. I'm sure that the obstacles she overcame just to get wrestling yeah. were probably tremendous back in 1908. I mean, realize you're in an era where most of the time women were not allowed to be spectators. Yeah. In New York in 1915, it was a big deal that they let women in the Manhattan Opera House mm-hmm. to watch the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament. And Sam Rockman, who was the promoter, really pushed that. Because women were allowed to go to the wrestling matches in um, Europe. But in the United States, they were still very backwards with their laws a lot of times. I mean, you'd go out west, women weren't allowed in saloons. Mm -hmm. You know, women weren't allowed here. And for a long time, women weren't allowed at wrestling matches or places where uh, men would be semi-clothed and stuff like that. I mean, just... We all know what happens when you try to legislate morality, so it was it was really silly. But that was the norm back then, so it's really something to overcome at uh, yeah. in your career. So that's it for this episode of "It Was Almost Real," the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. You can find the show notes for this and every episode at kenslermanjr. dot com, and you can look either under the podcast category. Or you can just put kensermanjr.com slash episode, whatever episode you want. You just put the number behind episode, and it'll pop up with the show notes. And until next time, enjoy, be safe, and we'll see you. Catch you later,
1: guys.